0: Today, we're going to talk about Islam. Would you already know some things about Islam? Because you've read some about it. So let's start with this. What does Islam mean? Do y'all know? Uh, Islam. Wait, is it the. Oh, I lost it. It's the thing. Submit to the will of God? Submit. Okay, it means submit. A Muslim is one who submits. Okay? And that is pretty illustrative and important to maybe contrast, because uh, in Judaism and Christianity, there's a call toward faith. But in Islam, there's a call toward submission, and it's a gradient difference. Okay? Submission is more, no questions, just submit. Faith entails a little bit more dialogue. Okay? So you could sort of fruitfully contrast it with the idea uh, of submission versus faith. So let's talk about Muhammad. Muhammad was an illiterate merchant in the city in modern-day Saudi Arabia of where? Where is he from? Mecca. Mecca. Okay, this is where Islam is born. And you have to understand that Islam, or excuse me, that Mecca was a huh, a Mecca. Get it? You know what Mecca is used for now? Like we say, oh yeah, that city's Chicago's a Mecca for sports fans. It means lots of people go there, okay? Because in Islam, one of the pillars of the faith is pilgrimage to Mecca, right? If you're a good Muslim, you're supposed to at least once in your life travel to Mecca, okay? But at the time, Mecca was a very important trading city, which means it was sort of cosmopolitan. There was a lot of religions there. There was the polytheistic religions of... The tribes, people of the uh, Arabian Peninsula, uh, there were Jews and there were Christians, and it's evident that Muhammad had conversations with all of these people. Okay, it's clear that he um, had rubbed elbows with them and had at least some interactions with them. So Muhammad marries a wealthy widow much older than he, she was in her 40s, named Khadija. And because she was wealthy, this sort of put him in a pretty good position, and he had more leisure on his time. And he began to retreat uh, to caves to study and meditate. And as Muhammad told it, um, he was visited by an angel who told him, he said it was the angel Gabriel, who who told him, the first thing he said was, recite. Okay? And basically, he began giving Muhammad teachings, usually sentence long, maybe a paragraph long, which Muhammad was supposed to simply memorize, okay? So that he had it in his memory. And again, in an oral culture, this is what you do. You memorize it. Um, and these, uh, these sayings, this is, this happens in 610 A.D. Or it begins to happen in 610 A.D. These sayings that the angel gave him are the basis of the Quran later on. Lots of different ways the Quran is spelled. I actually don't know if Muslims prefer uh, particular spelling. There's a lot of different ways... All right, it became the. I say it's the basis of the Quran because, as I said, Muhammad himself was illiterate, so he never wrote any of this down. He simply recited it um, to his disciples. So he went home and he began to teach it to Khadijah, and he began to teach it to others, and eventually something of a of a following grew around Muhammad in Mecca. I should point out now that the, the Quran is very different from the Bible, where the Bible is this. I mean, let's list all the genres in the Bible. What are all the different genres in the Bible? Styles of writing. Letters. Letters. Stories of people's lives. Okay, narratives. Laws. Poetry. Fable. Tons of different styles of literature that make up the Bible. The Quran is one style. Little didactic statements of what we might call how to conduct yourself. Okay? Sometimes doctrinal statements. The Quran is made up of surahs, basically verses... And something unique about the Quran, it's not arranged chronologically like in the order that the surahs were given to Muhammad. It's arranged in longest surahs first and declining length. Okay? So it's maybe a little bit like maybe a little bit like parts of Leviticus and parts of Proverbs, okay? Uh it's not it doesn't have historical narratives, it doesn't have um poetry or worship poetry. It's very different in style in many ways. All right. And these surahs or verses touch on a variety of subjects to how to treat wives, uh, what jihad is, which we'll get to in a little bit, um, what to think about Jews, how to relate to Christians. Okay, so it's a, 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 a a multitude of things. The five pillars of Islam come from this in various ways. Um, and contrary to Judaism and Christianity, if you really want to read the Quran, you can only really read it in Arabic. Okay, Whereas Christianity has always been a very eminently translatable faith. It's, it's thought that it should be translated. People see this signified by that there's three languages on the cross of Jesus, right, that say king of the Jews. Um, Muslims would say that if you really want to study the scriptures, you've got to or the Quran, you've got to study it in Arabic. Wait, so we couldn't read it though? Like, are we allowed to read it? You're allowed to read it, but um, you can read it in English. But if you were a Muslim and you wanted to be faithful, if you really wanted to be serious, you would learn Arabic and begin to study the Bible in, or the Quran in Arabic. So you could just like go to a bookstore and buy a Quran. Oh, sure. There's Korans. You can get one from Amazon. Yeah. Okay. Um, now this is where I, yeah. Do you know what, like what Muslims think of the Bible? Um, so they would say much like what Mormons and others say, they say that it's been corrupted by the Jews. Um, so let's talk about that. So one thing I would note is that I would compare. If there was anything I were, you really don't compare the Quran and, of uh, the Bible what you compare is the Quran and Christ, okay? The place that Jesus holds in Christianity is sort of the place that the Quran holds in Islam. Does that make sense? There's almost this absolute, it's almost, obviously they're monotheistic, but it's almost as if it's worshiped. Whereas Christians have been guilty of what we would call bible idolatry, but that's idolatry, right? We don't worship the Bible. It's one of the mediums God gives us to know him, but Christ would be the center of our faith. Does that make sense? And this is sort of key. So there's tons in the Bible about things like Jesus, Mary, lots of things about the Bible. So basically, Muslims would say that the, the Quran is an authoritative correction of all prior scriptures. Okay, So they say Adam was a prophet. Moses was a prophet. Jesus was a prophet. And that he didn't die on the cross. Uh, he was raised like Elijah. He evaded death and went straight uh, to heaven. Okay? So they say lots about um, the faith of Jews and Christians, but they say this is all a correction of that. Right? Um, okay, so Muhammad begins to accrue quite a following. His wife is his first disciple. Eventually, when his following is large enough, he goes into a central shrine in Mecca and destroyed all the idols in the shrine, except one stone, which um, he claimed God sent to Abraham as a sort of a a waypoint between heaven and earth called the Kaaba. All right, if you go to Mecca today, which really you can't go unless you're a Muslim, a lot of Muslim religious sites you can't go, you can't go to unless uh, you're a Muslim. Like in Jerusalem, the on top of what what used to have the temple is the the um, Dome of the Rock. It's called. It's a mosque. Uh, unless you're a Muslim, you can't go in. And if you pose as a Muslim, they're going to figure it out. Okay, because a lot of people will try to pose as Muslims to get inside because they want to see it and you're not allowed. Um, or you might start a uh, small war if you. Okay, so. So nobody's seen the inside of it? Yes. Well, Muslims side. So this is the shrine housing the Kaaba in Mecca okay and if you ever look at a lot of times pilgrims go and they go to touch the shrine or to touch the stone If you see an overhead it's like a giant whirl it's like a mosh pit a whirl of people and every year during pilgrimage times there's people who are trampled to death because it's I mean it's kind of chaotic okay so he sets that up as an important Muslim shrine Um, and tries to more or less take over the religions uh, of Mecca. Um, and as you might imagine, what do you think the locals thought of that? They didn't like it because those shrines are a source of income. Okay, I mean, idols never like being torn down, but these idols were a source of pilgrimage income. All kinds of people came to Mecca and he was cutting into their, uh, cutting into their um, revenue. So this is a very polytheistic context and eventually the meccans are kind of sick of Muhammad and his religion and they kick him out of kick him out of Mecca. This is the date that you have to know 622 the Hijra. Okay? This is comparable to the beginning of the Jewish calendar which is when the Israelites are driven from or go out of Egypt, right? We're in the year 7 something according to the Jewish calendar if you date it from that event. Um, and, you know, ADBC in the Christian calendar, 622 is the beginning of the Jewish calendar when the prophet Muhammad is driven from Mecca. He went to a neighboring city not far north called Medina. And This is another important place. There in Medina, he founds a Muslim state. And this is one of the things that's very important to understand about Islam is that at its roots, it is a political system and a religion at the same time. Okay, there's not... Huh? There's no separation of church and state. Islam is a political system as well as a religion. That makes sense? Important to understand that. So he sets up an Islamic state where um, the punishments for various sins are Muslim punishments for those sins. And then, after consolidating a good deal of power there in Medina, he returns to Mecca in 630 and drives out everybody that opposes him and establishes there a Muslim state. So, again, I said that it's political and religious. I think I should say it's political, religious, and military military all rolled into one. And very quickly, Muhammad begins to consolidate power and conquer all over the Arabian Peninsula, okay? And everywhere he goes in conquest, he gives you options, okay? You can convert to Islam, and then everything's okie-dokie. You submit to the political rule of the prophet, and you become a Muslim, and it's all good. He had various responses to other groups. Sometimes Jews he would kill if they refused to convert and enslave the children and wives. Uh, Sometimes he would allow them to live as second-class citizens where they were taxed and they had particular rules like they couldn't build a synagogue, they could not convert, it was illegal to convert. So eventually in strict Muslim regimes, if you convert from Islam to Christianity, it, you, you will suffer the death, pe- death penalty. Okay, it's, it's against the law. But he, Muhammad had a certain respect for Jews and Christians because he said they were people of the book, by which he meant the Bible, which he said was deficient, but at least he had some kind of respect. So that was the choice, either convert or live as a second-class citizen. Sometimes he killed um, those who wouldn't convert. And this gets to a sort of complicated matter in Islam. There are differing views towards, or differing um, admonishments towards Christians and Jews within the Quran itself. And people go, oh, well, which is it? Right? Do you war against them and kill them, or do you show them mercy and tax them? And they have a long tradition of interpretation deciding between those, those different interpretations within the Quran. And there's fundamentalists, and there's people who are, Maybe you could call it a little more progressive. All right, but Muhammad conquers all of the Arabian Peninsula, much of what we would call modern-day Saudi Arabia and a lot of those countries that are in the modern Middle East. Um, and as I said, at times he could be quite ruthless. Again, he, would, he beheaded a whole group of Jewish men. Um, sometimes he could be quite ruthless and cruel. And Islam has some pretty harsh laws, right? Stealing, lose a hand. Okay, adultery for a woman, death. Here's an odd thing. In a, lot of, uh, in a lot of Islamic law, to prove a rape on a woman, there needs to be four witnesses. But, uh, how many people think that's fair for the women? How, many people, how, how often do you think rapes get proven? Okay, they don't often get proven. Um. Muhammad Muhammad himself had um, many wives. Uh, The counts vary, but I think one count is 14. One girl he betrothed at the age of nine. Oh, And in many Islamic countries, men are allowed to have four wives. Okay? Because, in part, because the prophet had four. More, but four is the standard. Um... But it should be noted that they have pretty decent divorce rules, meaning if there's divorce, the wife is uh, decently provided for. Okay, well, in 632, Muhammad dies, and most of Arabia is now under Islamic control. He was the prophet, he was the ruler, you might call him the king, but now he's dead, and he left no directions on who's next, okay, and this is where we get into a faction or a division in Islam that is with us to this day. Um, there are the Sunni. And there's about 90% of Muslims are Sunni. And then there are the Shia. And it's about 10%. Whoops. Okay. The, what it came down to is a debate over should... Muhammad's right hand man, who's not related to him, be his successor, or should his nephew be his successor? And I actually, sorry, don't know which is which. Okay, but the bottom line is there's a question over succession, and since that time, they have been fighting one another. And actually, the largest Muslim violence in the world is against other Muslims. In other words, you know, sometimes Muslims attack Christians, but by far, the largest amount of violence is intra-Muslim violence. And it's usually the Sunni against the Shia. Okay, the Shia are the minority. But oh, wait, why does it say two percent? What? Why does it say 90% on Sunni? Sorry, the Sunni are the majority. The Shia are the minority. Okay, so this is why uh, the date 732, what is that date? Charles Martel almost miraculously stops the invading Muslim armies in France this is why this is so shocking Muhammad dies in 632 by the time of his death Muslim armies are advancing through France okay they've conquered all of northern Africa they've pushed on the borders of the Byzantine Empire they conquer Spain and are pressing into France Okay, and many people say that the Battle of Tours is one of those uh, turning points in history that if it had gone differently, you and I would be speaking Arabic and we would be Muslims okay? because Christianity wouldn't have made it in Europe. Um, oh, there's something else I was going to say about that. Oh, so 732, they're in France. Charles Martel pushes them back into Spain. But what happens in 1492? What happened in 1492? You know what happened, what? Columbus. All right. No, Columbus. So. The Spanish sponsored Columbus to go to the New World, but why? Because from 732 on, the Spanish have been slowly fighting the Muslims in Spain. The Muslims in Spain set up a kingdom. They're there for a long time. They're called Moors. They bring things like oranges to Spain. Okay? They bring what is, one of their best things they give us in mathematically is what? What do what do what, do, what do, what's Muslim culture civilization give us? Zero. Zero. Okay, Arabic numerals. All right? Big improvement over Roman numerals, yes. Mm-hmm. Um, they give us algebra. Okay? Al as a prefix to a word is often it's coming from Arabic. Algebra, alcohol. Okay, these are all Arabic words in origin. Alcohol is a word because they didn't drink it. They're, fam- they're famously teetotalers. They prohibit the consumption of alcohol. Alright, so from 732 to 1492, the Spanish are fighting the Moors. I mean, it's a long, there's a famous epic called El Cid. You ever seen Mexican restaurant called El Cid? It's because it's a Spanish epic about Christian knights in Spain fighting against the Moors. It is, you could say, a holy war between Christians and Muslims, okay? So in 1492, the Spanish had finally driven the Moors out of Spain, and all of a sudden, there were centuries of warfare, and they had nothing to do. So they say, sure, Columbus, we'll we'll sponsor these explorations. I should also add that in 1492, the Spanish drive all Jews out of Spain. Had to either forcibly convert to Christianity or leave. So they're, they're dispossessed, or many of them f- sort of faked Christian conversion. Okay. Um, the five pillars of Islam. Okay, these are five practices that every Muslim must do in order to be a good Muslim. And it's interesting, what's important about these that I would note is you might compare them profitably to the Ten Commandments, okay? And notice in the Ten Commandments, um, there's some similarities and there's some differences. what I would note, though, is that in the five pillars, there's more sort of practices that you must do, not things you must believe or worship that you must engage in. They're, they're kind of different in that regard. So here are the five pillars. The first one, declaration of faith. Okay, every, to be a Muslim, you must make a declaration of faith. There is one God, Allah, and Muhammad is his prophet. That's the creed. Okay, there is one God, Allah, and Muhammad is his prophet. I should add, by the way, or just a side note, that Arab Christians, okay, so Christians who speak Arabic as their native language, do you know what they call God? Allah. Okay, it's, it's not a special word for necessarily a different God. It's just the generic word in Arabic for God. Okay? Um. So there's no, there is no God but God and Muhammad is his prophet or his messenger. Every Muslim must make that declaration of faith. And in order to become a Muslim, you do that. And you're a Muslim, okay, if you believe it. The second pillar is worship or prayer. And some groups, the standard is you have to do this five times a day. And in order to do it, you get on your hands and knees and bow in the direction of Mecca. So if you go to a hotel in the Middle East, in a a majority Muslim country, usually there will be an arrow on the floor of the ceiling pointing in the direction of Mecca, okay? So that you can calculate what direction Mecca is in. Um, So prayer or slash worship is that sort of bowing down. And by the way, this is the origin of the minarets. Remember we talked about the minarets on uh, the Hagia Sophia? The minarets are crier towers. You, You go up and you issue the call to prayer. All right, and this is five times a day. Okay, the third pillar, almsgiving. This is compulsory, and it's like a tax, and it's like a tithe all rolled into one. Basically, it's a 2.5% annual tax on all your income or your goods. And it was for the poor. Okay, so it's like the Old Testament tithe, sort of, like New Testament um, giving. Um. Number four, fasting during the holy month of Ramadan. Now, the, the, the Muslim calendar is uh, set according to the moon, so it moves. I don't know if you've noticed this, that the Ramadan is not the same time every year. Well, it's because it's on the calendar that goes with the moon, so it moves around compared to the sun. No, nope, here's what you do. During Ramadan, you fast during daylight hours. Okay, so what that typically means, you fast from, you know, all the things that they think about fasting from. Food, cigarettes, other things. Um, but that means that every day, what do they do? They have a big feast every day at sundown during Ramadan. I've always wondered if they gain weight. You know, because, I don't, I don't know. I just, How do you spell Ramadan? Uh, phonetically, R-A-M-A-D-A-N. Um, yeah, so uh, Maggie bought a truck from this little small used car dealership on the north end of town, and the owner was uh, the owner was Muslim. And I got there and was like, "Hey, we'd like to test drive this car, this truck." He's like, "Here's the keys." I said, "Do we you need a, no, no? You, you don't need my ni- no, <laughs> just go." And when we got back, he's like, "Look, do you want to buy this? Uh, the it's it's almost sundown, and I'm really hungry. Like it was during Ramadan. He's <laughs> like, "I just want to get this transaction over with because I want to go eat." Okay, Um, and then the fifth pillar is pilgrimage to Mecca. Um, It's required of all adults at least once in their life. Now, again, a couple things I would note about this. This is sort of a list of rules. It doesn't really require anything about the state of your heart. It's not even really a moral list, right? Now, I know that this is one school, a very, very fundamentalist school, but the 9-11 attackers were at a strip club the night before they uh, went and blew up, you know, did their, did their acts of terrorism. And they were quite convinced they were headed to heaven because they practiced all these things, okay? So they weren't particularly moral like we have this sort of code in the Judeo-Christian tradition. They just believed, did these things. That's not to say that there aren't moral Muslims. It's just that the system itself doesn't have a lot of emphasis on that. Does that make sense? As long as you're outwardly compliant to these things, you're kind of good to go. Um, Now, you could say, and I think it's important to add, that there is a sixth pillar. And that is uh, jihad. Uh, Now, there's a lot of debate about this. Isn't it like so it, it means violence, and it, depending on the denomination or the school that a person follows in Islam, they will interpret it differently. Many interpret it as violence against one's sins, and this is where there's this moral component. You have a duty to wage war against your sins, okay? They interpret jihad that way. Others the school that were influence, that influenced the 9-11 attackers believe it means violence against unbelievers, against infidels, okay? Um, and so they interpret it as literally a holy war, okay? Duty-bound to fight, to defend the faith, and to kill infidels. Okay, so Islam creates this vast empire in the Middle East centered in, on Iraq, centered in Baghdad. In fact, Baghdad was kind of the Jerusalem of uh, Islam. Um, by the way, the Dome of the Rock in Jerusalem is supposedly the place where the prophet Muhammad traveled by night with an angelic figure to heaven. And so they say that's, that commemorates that site. That's why they claim it. Um, so Islam, this Islamic empire, entered a golden age in the 9th century, the 800s. In other words, they had a vast, prosperous, educated, thriving empire. And this is where a lot of the advances that we associate with Islamic culture come from. Um, advances in math, particularly the number zero. Advances in medicine, particularly the cesarean section. okay, Surgery for removing babies which saves many women's lives. So that's a significant medical advance. They were very good navigators, okay? They, they were excellent at um, travel by sea. And they could be enlightened and sometimes more compassionate than Christian conquerors during the Crusades, all right? So Saladin the Great is the guy who took Jerusalem back from the Crusaders after the first Crusade And he was much more merciful in his conquest of the city than the Christian conquerors were. So there could be some real enlightenment and civilization among them. But what began to happen is there was a fundamentalist movement within Islam in in the Middle East. And this fundamentalist movement said, we've got to get rid of everything that's not basically Arabic culture. Okay, so that meant... They had been studying Greek, they had been studying uh, Greek philosophy, that was forbidden, okay? Um, so many people would argue that a lot of this, in this uh, these advances came from studying other cultures during this time. So the advances in math came from studying Greek ma- mathematicians. The cesarean section, many people say, actually came from Christian monks who lived within the, Bus- or the this Islamic empire. Uh, who were excellent doctors. Um, so they, their golden age end, ended and they entered into this sort of fundamentalist stage where, um, again, if it's not sort of Arabic culture, it's forbidden. Now again, there's many different denominations of Muslim, many different schools. Most of the um, people who perpetrate violence are from one particular sect within Islam that interprets jihad as violence. All right, so we should look at the various kinds of Islamic states today. Oh, what time is it? 4.08. Oh, we're good. Okay. So let's talk about the various kinds of Islamic states that exist today. I'll give sort of three categories of Islamic states. You have purest states with Islamic law in its strictest form, places like Saudi Arabia. And Afghanistan before the United States overthrew the Taliban, All right? In these places, women you know, women are not allowed to be educated. Um, women have to wear the hijab, the head covering. OK. There's various levels of this. Um, there's in grocery stores, there's a man's grocery store and a women's grocery store. Think about the logistics of that. Like, they have the same products on both sides, but the men can go in one and the women can go in another. Women have to be covered up in public. Only recently were women allowed to drive in Saudi Arabia. But what's weird about that is women would be like all, they'd have women's swimming pools and they'd be all bikini clad, but then if they go out in public, they've got to be totally covered up. Women are not allowed to go out in public without a male family member attending them. Okay? A brother, a father, uncle, husband. So there's very strict Muslim countries, Saudi Arabia. Um, yeah, Turkey, like that. Saudi Arabia is like that now. They're liberalizing a little. I don't know if y'all have seen in Iran, there's a... So a very fundamentalist group took over in the 70s in Iran, the Shah. And they have ruled Iran since then and sort of ruled public morality. In other words, if a woman was caught out on the streets without a hijab, she could be she could get in trouble with the sort of the morality police there. But there's always been a very strong undercurrent in Iran that resisted that. Right now they're having all these women riots where they're burning the, their hijabs and cutting their hair. And a lot of people are speculating that the Shah, that whole regime, is going to collapse. It's also one of the fastest growing Christian countries in the world. So it's it'll be interesting to see in the decades to come what happens in Iran because it may... It may open up more to the West, and Christianity may really do well there. Um, Within a state, we could call this a somewhat, maybe a grade lower, maybe not as strict, but Turkey is an example of a Muslim country today, that there's a lot of Western influence, but Christians cannot build churches, Christians cannot share their faith, Christians cannot improve their churches, and you can get in real trouble with the government if you try to convert a Muslim to Christianity. So it's a little more free, but it's also still pretty strict. What was this one called? Uh, This is Turkey, modern day Turkey, Istanbul. Okay. Okay. But the purest states, what kind of state is this called? Uh, Oh, Turkey is a little more open, not quite as strict according to Muslim law. But nonetheless, there's a lot of these rules that are there, right? right? Christians can't do missionary work, et cetera, et cetera, all right? It's all right. still, it's not as strict as Saudi Arabia, but it's still pretty strict, okay? Um, <clears throat> let's call it a mixed state with right. that's dominant Islam, but um, is a little more open. That's where my friend lives, from the camp. Okay, yeah. So you, I have found Muslims from Turkey to be often very culturally Muslim. Like they adhere to the practices, they might even wear the hijab, but uh, they're not particularly devoted. There was a, my parents went to a conference and there was this girl who said she was a Muslim and like she had a hijab and all, but she was married to a Christian. Yeah, that would not be, that would be typical of Turkey, I think. Um, but not, you know, one wonders about the sincerity of both persons' faith, right? If you don't have, if you're not serious enough about your faith to marry somebody that shares your faith. Um, and then we could say there are, lar- there are countries with large Muslim populations that don't have any laws on the books that are Islamic, but might one day simply because they have a huge demographic. So an example of this is the Netherlands. We have a very large Muslim population in the ne- the Netherlands, and there's a movement among those Muslims to make m- Islamic law the law of the land. Okay, so there's a sort of a famous story or infamous story about a uh the grandson of Vincent van Gogh, Theo van Gogh, was a filmmaker, and he made a movie with a woman who grew up in a, in a um, Africa or a Muslim country in Africa. So there is a law, or there is one of the services about beating your wife. If your wives give you trouble, you can beat them and send them to rooms apart. So what this filmmaker, Theo Van Gogh, did is he, with this woman, they wrote this little sort of short movie. And in the short movie, it would have the Arabic script, and then it would flash, and it would show a woman's body with a bruise or a cut. So basically, it was a sort of a ham-fisted way of saying, Islam abuses women. All right, And you can, you know, whatever You can agree with how critical they were, whatever Well, there was a fatwa issued against this guy Meaning, Islamic leaders said That guy needs to die And somebody caught him on the street Stabbed him to death And stabbed a note to him that said Thus to infidels okay? Now the Netherlands is like uh, Maybe we let too many Muslims in And we need to figure out How to handle this This is getting problematic Okay, Um, So it's a question Some people say Based on immigration That Europe will be Arab That will be Islamic In 50 years The pushback on that Because there's so much immigration And they have lots of kids The pushback on that is What happens is It seems to be They do have lots of kids But when they move to the west Say to America They generally tend In the next generation Not to have as many kids And not to be that pious Right, so you know it's an open question. Um, let me close with this. Going back to the five pillars, I have this. This is just my theory that Muhammad was like, okay, I got to make up my own religion, and but I got to have things that compete or are similar to Judaism and Christianity, so that many of the practices of Islam, I think, are sort of parroting christian practices does that make sense so let's go back through the five and see declaration of faith you could compare to what Baptism. sort of you could compare it to the recitation of the shema by jews pious jews are supposed to pray the shema twice a day uh you could you could compare it to reciting the, the creed for christians okay it's a very similar thing um worship or prayer five times a day does that remind you of anything so remember, the monks would worship seven times a day and Jews have twice a day recitation of the Shema. Uh, almsgiving. I mean, I mean, I mean. Tithing both for Jews and Christians. Um, <laughs> fasting during Ramadan, which is a 40-day month. Yeah. Fasting during Lent, yeah. Okay, which is a longer-standing Christian practice. Pilgrimage to Mecca there's, you know, Jews made pilgrimage to Jerusalem and Christians in the Middle Ages made pilgrimage to various Christian sites. So to me, it seems like there's a lot of practices that are sort of an imitation or this is our version of that. Um, They even have a holy book. Again, I would say the Quran is a very different thing from the Bible. The Bible is a much... Have you read any of it? I've read some of it. I've not read it cover to cover, but I've read some of it. Yeah. Um... All right, finally, I should say this. There are many Christians who will point out that Muslims are much better than a lot of Christians at a lot of things that we believe in. Like they're very family-centered, right? They're very family-oriented. They're clearly very big on modesty, although maybe they go a little bit, you know, too far, but they're pretty big on modesty, So, you know, there's things that we should say where, hey, I, I, I disagree, and they fundamentally get some things wrong, but there's things maybe to respect. I think it's a matter of not just, we can be clear about where you disagree, but not just write people off. Lastly, I'll just share this. There are lots of stories. I'm actually reading a book right now that I recommend. I haven't finished it, but I don't think there's anything in it that would be that's any worse than anything in the Iliad of the Odyssey. It's called Everything Sad is Untrue. And it's by a guy who grew up in Iran and who his mom had to come to the States because she converted to Christianity. And um, it sort of gives you a lot of cultural background. It's a really good book. It's I think it's marketed as a young adult book, but it's a really good book. Um, just sort of about what it's like to be a Muslim and convert to Christianity. But there's one story I read recently about a young girl in... I think the northern part of modern-day Iraq, who one day was reading the Koran, and it mentioned Jesus, right? I mean, again, as I said, it talks about Jesus. And when she encountered Jesus in the Koran, she suddenly was like, I have to find out about this person. And she asked around and, and found, you know, that, oh, there's this book that talks about him, secretly got a hold of this book, secretly converted to Christianity, and got out. Because that's the only way. She couldn't stay. So um, it's interesting that even the Quran, that I would say has some problematic aspects. Jesus is mentioned. You know, Paul says, I don't care if they have a bad motive. If Jesus is preached, I'm happy. So um, there's that. All right, any questions before we finish for the day?